0: Hi, good afternoon, actually, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is David e. Luca. I'm very happy to uh, welcome you all this evening here at this, uh, this event. Uh, before we start, let me uh, be explain very quickly. So, uh, well, first of all, I'm very happy to have uh, introduced our, our special guest, uh, Yezid Sahil. Uh, this evening. Uh, he will be speaking for around 20-30 uh, minutes, and then we will have a uh, time for Q&A, so uh, very happy to uh, to hear your your questions. Um, before we start, let me remind you, if you could, uh, let me kindly ask if you can uh, switch off your telephones, and uh, and also please remember that the, 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 the talk is being recorded. Um, and last, last but not least, if you want to tweet, the hashtag is a LSE Egypt, for, so hashtag uh, LSC Egypt for the, for the evening. Um, let me introduce the, the guest, and uh, I guess you are all here, so you might know him already. But it's a it's a brief introduction. Uh, Yazid is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut, where he leads the the program on, on uh, civil military relations in Arab states, the CMRAS. Uh, before that, he held uh, he held teaching positions in a, in a in a very very Prestigious universities, including King's College, the University of Cambridge, and Oxford. And uh, as well, as, so he was a visiting fellow was affiliated uh, at uh, Harvard and uh, the American University of Beirut, among others, and, uh, and SOAS, last but not least. Uh, finally, uh, perhaps uh, very importantly, he was an advisor and negotiator to the Palestinian delegation to the peace talk between Israel and Palestine. And, and headed the Palestinian delegation to the multilateral pistols on our uh, controls and, uh, and regional securities from uh, 91 to 94. So uh, tonight, as you may already know, he's going to speak on an um, Egypt military economy as per head for the revival of state capitalism. And uh, with this, my brief introduction is, uh, is, uh, comes to an end. Uh, let uh, uh, join me in, in welcoming uh,
1: Uh, the floor is yours. Thanks. That's... Oh, it's on already. Okay. It's a pleasure being here again. Um, I, I have a feeling that every time I speak at the LSE, at the Middle East Centre, um, I've got work in progress, and so I tend to have a slightly unfocused approach and to ramble a bit, so do cut me off when you need to uh, after 20 to 30 minutes. Um, this, this is what I decided to do. I, I launched this uh, book-length report in November on Egypt's military economy, uh, an attempt to go into real detail as to just what it is that the military actually does in the economy, why it does it, with what impacts and implications. And this is because there's a lot said about the subject, but precious little detailed, careful uh, research and analysis. Um, But what I wanted to do today was more than simply summarize the report, Uh, you can find it online, it's uh, freely downloadable in English and Arabic, Uh, but rather to take a particular angle and to try and do something that's a little bit new, at least for me, in terms of um, one takeaway. And one thing that I I became very interested in as I wrapped up the report and since its its launch and as I've discussed it, is what appears to me to be uh, a process in which the military, not the military alone, but the military, the armed forces, the defense sector, the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Military Production, a number of agencies, so broadly the military, how the military has become, among other things, a vehicle through which a certain element of state ownership or state involvement in the wider economy is taking place, which makes it look a little bit like a restoration of the kind of state-owned enterprises that uh, Nasser first created in 1961 and onwards. And this is interesting because, of course, Egypt has undergone undergone a lot of privatization since 1991, uh, two main phases of this. Uh, there is a very strong, large private sector in Egypt that uh, accounts for a big part of GDP, job generation, etc. And yet, at the same time, what I'm presenting here is a suggestion that um, the, the, the Egyptian state under President Sisi is engaged in something that in effect, whether this is intentional or not, but in effect, uh, recreates some aspects of state capitalism as we knew it under Nasser. Um, Nasser, Sadat, Mubarak. I mean, there's, there's a lot of continuity there, really. Um, and so what I want to try and do is, first of all, lay out the general argument. Um, try and work out what I mean, maybe what I don't mean, and then look in particular at where the military fits into this. Um, and so what I'm, using, what I'm doing here is using the military as a lens or as a prism through which to see the wider process, but also to try and identify just what I see the military themselves as doing. I mean, so recognizing the particular role they play in today's Egyptian economy and state capitalism that differs in some ways than their past role. Now, I'll start out by saying that I'm not going to define state capitalism. Uh, It's a very broad term, very loose. It means many different things. Uh, Broadly, it's taken to mean state ownership or control of means of production. This could be uh, the actual materials, the machinery, the the factories, the land, labor. uh, But it also refers to state control over setting policy um, and the levers, such as price controls or tax uh, customs and, and so on. Uh, you know, licensing supply, licensing export or import. And um, this can apply, therefore, to economies that have large or or significant private sectors, uh, but where we also think of these as state capitalism. China could be a good example of that, if you like. So the models are endless. There are many different permutations. And I'm not suggesting any particular one definition, nor am I suggesting good or bad normative connotation here. All I'm trying to say is that there is a pattern in which the state, either through direct ownership or partial ownership of uh, means of production of, of companies and assets, or through various controls and levers through which it shapes the environment within which other actors, both private sector, domestic private sector, but foreign companies, operate. So the state clearly has a very important role in Egypt. Um, You had uh, Ishak Diwan here two weeks ago launching his own book on the subject, the edited volume, and he and his fellow authors uh, talk a lot about these kinds of uh, controls and also how political connectedness in particular in Egypt, as in many other economies, plays a very significant role in determining the profitability of individual companies as well. So having said all that, I'll try to get into what I'm offering here. Um, first, I'll lay out my argument, such, it is, such as it is so far. I'm still working on this, trying to come up with a more elegant articulation. Um, that The primary goal here, under the C.C. administration, and as under every preceding administration since the Free Officers took power in 1952, or certainly since 1956 when Nasser became officially president. Um, The primary goal is to secure the core base or constituency of the regime, call it what you will, governing coalition, the administration. So in other words, one presidency after another, with its institutional allies, with its senior figures, with its ministers, and so on, um, every successive administration has sought primarily to secure its political base, and since at least 1961, if not earlier, that base, the foremost base, is in the state sector. In other words, the massive uh, civilian bureaucracy and associated agencies, the military and interior ministry, which together, nowadays, there's about six and a quarter million civil servants of various kinds. And who knows, anything like, well, at least half a million men in the armed, standing armed forces, the interior ministry, is said to you know, number anything from half a million to one and a half million, if you include uh, plain clothes and informers and so on. So we're talking about a very massive sector. And this is the primary constituency, with gradations within it. There are some who are more important than others. Um, but this is the primary goal. And in order to secure this constituency, this means providing capital. Capital for welfare, for salaries, for pensions, for perks and allowances, fringe benefits, or for investment in schemes that benefit this constituency. And these could be direct and indirect benefits. It could be housing. It could be uh, subsidized commodities. It could be a great many different things, but all of them, at the end of the day, wrap around securing this core constituency in a very broad sense. And again, concentric circles within this that are narrower and narrower. So there are, of course, the, the sort of core elite allies or coalition members of the governing coalition which today unlike almost any pre- preceding administration are almost entirely composed only of state institutions the military interior justice sector to some extent other bits of the state bureaucracy uh, what i think is very interesting about the Sisi administration we can have a discussion about this later is just how narrow its social alliances compared to any past administration. It stands in very stark contrast, for instance, to the Mubarak administration in this respect, which managed to bring in a much wider and more diverse range of social political actors, business class, lower, you know, middle, big business, uh, bits of labor, uh, even the Muslim Brotherhood in, indirectly or informally now what this also suggests then so there's the primary goal of you know of, of preserving the regime by preserving its core base or constituency and the focus of that is generating capital or if you like finding capital because often the problem in egypt is that most of these successive regimes have failed to prioritize generating domestic capital or domestic sources of capital i.e. making industry more productive, making agriculture more productive, making service sectors more productive, because these would require reforms, economic and administrative reforms, that are problematic and that would challenge social and political stability and the alliance itself that governs the country. So what pretty much every administration since Abdel Nasser in the late 50s, even before the 1961 so-called socialist decrees, have sought... Uh, other sources of capital, either by expropriating property, land reform, for instance, in the 1950s, uh, the socialist decrees, of course, of 1961, which generated overnight a lot of capital, and, of course, uh, external alliances with the Soviet Union, uh, with the USA, with one or other actor, which provided uh, various forms of capital. And what This suggests, I'll wrap up the first sort of opening framework here, um, is that none of this is driven by a clear economic vision. It's not as if Sisi or before him Mubarak or Sadat or Nasser had an idea of what a socialist economy looked like or a capitalist economy looked like or even a neoliberal economy looked like. It's not driven by a clear vision nor by a clear ideology. It's rather an understanding that in order to maintain power, we need to secure our base and our alliance, our coalition, and this needs money. It's relatively straightforward and simple. The, the rest of the story really is, a, is about how do you find the money. And that, in that sense, I think is the common thread from the 1950s through 61 and onwards, is finding the capital with which to secure these goals And that has driven successive Egyptian presidents into one form of economic behavior to another. Nasser, after all, all, went through three phases, or he and the free officers. First, with land reform, which was not anti-bourgeois. I mean, it was very much about empowering the urban capitalists while weakening the landed gentry in the countryside and creating a small-holding peasant class. Second was Egyptianization after 1956, the expropriation or the forcing out of Greek, Italian, French, Jewish capital, and Egyptianizing it. And it's only after the failure of these two steps that we get to 1961. So none of this was driven by a prior socialist commitment on the behalf of Nasser. For instance, it was very much about how to extract capital from a domestic economy that was not cooperating in effect. And it was very interesting that, of course, with 1961 onwards, much of what happened was simply a transfer of companies and of their staff, their personnel, their employees wholesale from private ownership to public ownership, where they went on doing business pretty much as they used to do under private ownership, but it now became sort of socialized. Now, having established this very broad um, framing, um, what I want to shift to here and uh, partly to, to save time and allow more time later to expand on anything you're interested in, in discussion, um, is what I see since 2013, since the uh, establishment of what became the CC administration. Um, as a bit of backdrop uh, to, to sort of bridge between the two sets of things I, I'm discussing, um, privatization that was launched in 1991, led to the full or partial privatization of just over 300 companies, state-owned companies. Uh, But about the same number remained in state ownership. So for a start, we have an important shift after 1991, but also a partial shift in that something like half the companies were not privatized. And also a great many of the privatized companies were only partially privatized which meant that they remained very much subject to a lot of the insider relationships and trading and core dynamics that had characterized them when they were still in full state ownership. And so people like Diwan and others have have established that uh, through their study of the privatized companies that the partially privatized companies generally have been unsuccessful economically. It's only the fully privatized ones that really have taken a different course in terms of commercial viability. And it's very striking that just in the last two years, the government has been yet again confronting the problem of, well, at the moment they're looking at a list of nearly three dozen state-owned companies, including very large ones, that are failing commercially, and that once again the discussion is how do we save them, do we keep them in state ownership, do we pour more money after bad, Uh, do we privatize them, do we create joint stock, what do we do with them? And for two years the government has been trying to finalize a plan for possibly selling off at least part of these companies. And, uh, as, and and where we are right now is that none of them have been sold off. The scheme has been delayed, postponed. The number of companies that are first going to be on the first list for semi-privatization has been reduced. Uh, in other words, this is a perennial problem that Egypt continues to face. So we have a, an economy that in reality is already, I mean, it remains uh, very much affected influence shaped by the state where the state has direct ownership of important assets where it controls the economic domain within which the private sector operates to a very large degree I mean obviously all governments regulate but the level of regulation in Egypt and the extent of influence and leverage that allows government agencies is is very marked in Egypt to the extent that uh, people like the World Bank for instance assess that Uh, to all intents and purposes, uh, maybe a greater part of the Egyptian economy remains shaped by the state, even though the actual ownership is not in state hands, but in private hands. So, where does Sisi come in? Um, First, uh, I'd like to point out that Sisi, the, the Sisi administration, I don't mean to personalize this, although clearly there's a lot to do with his personality and with the extraordinary number of decrees that he produces, certainly while he was uh, the sole legislator le- late, just sole legislator uh before the new parliament was elected, but even then since then he remains a driver of much of the legislation in the form of presidential decrees um now. One thing he's been pushing quite hard is partnership with private companies and with foreign companies. This is something that is replicated by the military who seek very actively these kinds of partnerships, but these are characterized by various problems uh, I can discuss later on. What characterizes this administration, though, is a continued primary focus on rent, i.e., Uh, The use of land as real estate, in other words, you know, where where there's no socially uh, profitable activity going on in the form of manufacturing or services where value added comes through the addition of local content in manufacturing goods or in other areas, but rather through assets like land which can be turned into a commercial activity or a business market, which is not bad per se, but much of the strategy is about land turning it into real estate. And so we see the massive investment in the construction of so-called smart cities, the new administrative capital and other similar real estate schemes. Um, We have a very big emphasis on other aspects of extraction. Now that uh, natural gas has been found in very large quantities, of course, this is again a benefit to the economy, helps the generation of electricity. But again, if you look at where the investment is and where most of the foreign direct investment is in Egypt, Again, quoting the World Bank and other sources, most of this is in energy, and then secondarily in real estate and almost nothing in the other productive sectors, and that is highly problematic for Egyptian growth, uh, sustained growth, and for um, bringing capital into the rest of the economy and the rest of the population outside of those very limited sectors. Um, What's also happening is an increase in, you could call it brokerage, where the state is inserted into trade and value chains and this again is where the military will come in as i'll I'll come to in a moment and this again is thanks to the very high level of bureaucratic and legal power through which the president the prime minister ministers etc can either um promulgate laws or issue implementing statutes of those laws that um, shape the market in very diverse and, and, and significant ways there's also a very high level of discretion or discretionary power, what Bob Springborg, Robert Springborg uh, calls delegative democracy, i.e. where um, the power of the president and then of people he empowers to assign contracts by direct order, as it's called in Egypt, or where there's a non-competitive, no-bid basis for the award of public contracts. And under Sisi, and with the delegation of a lot of this authority to the military, You have a very sizable chunk of public spending is now awarded in this manner. And um, as of 2016, the public sector accounted for about 30% of GDP. So you can uh, understand that the award of public service, uh, of public contracts for the procurement of goods and services, is really important as a source of income for private sector companies. And if these are awarded on a non-competitive basis, of course, this shifts the, the playing field for everyone in the private sector, as well as for public sector companies that are also competing for some of these same bids. Um, and as Sisi himself has said often uh, in public, that um, he seeks to circumvent government bureaucracy, uh, which is a huge problem in Egypt, there's no doubt. Um, he's quite right in wanting to simplify it, but for now, until, unless and until government bureaucracy, regulations, the many many different sets of rules for different agencies and ministries, until these have been harmonized and standardized, which is something the IMF has demanded and Egypt has promised, but has yet not yet delivered. Um, until then, we do have an enormously complex government bureaucracy that private investors, foreign domestic. Uh, contractors have to navigate through. And that again offers a lot of bottlenecks where bureaucrats can, you know, demand bribes or can demand equity. And that happens a lot. Um, so there's a lot of discretion to award contract to favored contractors. Uh, CC again is on record as saying that he doesn't, uh, doesn't bother with feasibility studies. And he I quote this in my report, he said we would have achieved maybe 25% of what we've achieved in the last six years had we bothered with feasibility studies. And again, I mean, you can understand that up to a point, but uh, the people he's giving the contracts to are not necessarily people who know economics and know markets and therefore will get it right automatically. Um, And last but not least here, um, this administration is marked more clearly than its predecessors by operating in a legal gray zone. And I think this is highly important, certainly for foreign investors and companies working in Egypt as well as for the local private sector, which is that to the extent that the military is the economic counterpart as manager of public works contracts or as investor uh, in joint ventures, for instance, where the military offer the use of land as their contribution to capital in joint ventures. This is part of the new legislation that Sisi has overseen in the past few years. Um, what this creates is the military as a direct business partner or manager. Any company entering into uh, an activity under contract issued by, managed by, or where the tender is designed by the military, in effect, has entered with the military in a partnership of some kind. And the question then is, well, in the case of a dispute, what legislation, what, uh, what court system applies And this is highly important because in Egypt, the military comes under no jurisdiction except its own, the military jurisdiction. The military, of course, itself does not have in its penal code any provision for business disputes. I mean, it it doesn't have the the means to deal with business disputes, although it is now a business investor and partner. Um, The military are not obliged unless they so wish, and this applies to individual officers as well, to uh, be subject to civilian courts. And this is a huge problem, that for years now, um, there have been massive investments in zones like the Suez Canal, which are seen as a huge hub for investment <laughs> and for industrial development and a trade hub, etc. in Egypt, very understandably and logically. But the problem is that five or six, or even, in fact, the case of the Suez Canal, six full years later, um, the military and the relevant ministries have been unable to come up with a legal framework to govern business relations and disputes between military and non-military partners, whether they're Egyptian or or foreign. And this is a problem. It's resolvable, but it's a problem, and it hasn't been addressed yet. And that, I think, shows us something else, which I won't discuss right now, which is that although the president is the most powerful individual in Egypt, he also um, relies on a coalition. And to some extent, he is hostage, if you like, or has to uh, allow for his partners in the coalition. And this means that he can't just tell the military what he wants. Or it can also mean, as in this case, that he it's clear that he and the military prioritize certain projects like the Suez Canal Economic Zone or the new administrative capital. But then a powerful actor like the army can actually say no to Sisi or just ignore him when they don't agree with what he wants. So, for instance in the Suez Canal Zone, they're not comfortable with allowing um, some kind of legal framework to apply by which they are bound because this is a zone which is nominated as strategic and in which, therefore, the Ministry of Defense has the suzerain power of determining what is allowable and not allowable. So they are using land there as equity, but by law, the land cannot be alienated, so they can't actually sell it to anyone, but they can use it as equity. It's a very nice little comfortable area which is rather curious but if there were to be a dispute a foreign company would find it has no legal leg to stand on so this is the kind of thing again more of the framework now I'll I'll spend a few minutes and stop um, looking at some of the uh, areas where the military get involved and I don't mean to exaggerate The military's actual share of the total economy, uh, of GDP, of, uh, you know, value added to the economy. Uh, A big part of my report was designed to suggest that most of the estimates you will read commonly are not based on fact. I mean, you hear about 15, 25, 40, 50, 60 percent of the economy supposedly owned or controlled by by the military. I think this is totally wrong the actual share in a dollar sense is probably, you know, what C.C. says, which is one and a half to 2%, maybe 3% if you add in their management fees or profit margins from, from running and managing public works. But I think that misses the point of what their real impact is, and this is what I'm trying to get at here. So if we look at what the military has been doing, especially in the last six or seven years since C.C. came to office, is that they've significantly increased their role in the extraction of natural resources. Um, So areas like, say, Black Sands, from which heavy metals are derived, and these are extremely uh, profitable, very expensive metals that are used uh, in in all sorts of industry worldwide, and where Egypt has a significant share of the global uh, reserves. Um, this is something that the Ministry of Defense has gone into in the past two or so years and where it has uh, a monopoly position in this sector. Um, they've started going into gold prospecting, which until recently was controlled almost entirely by one major company, Centamine. Um, this is also an area that the Ministry is getting into phosphates. Um, they're possibly displacing the General Intelligence Directorate, which was the informal gatekeep- gatekeeper in oil and gas. So broadly speaking, natural resources is an obvious candidate, as it is in all rentier economies, where for relatively small investment, you can extract a lot of value. Um, And what this is also doing in some of these cases is displacing private sector companies, as we see in the case of marble and granite. Egypt, again, has important reserves, but tends to export most, most of its materials in raw form And the military has now built an enormous complex in Beni Suef, south of Cairo, where they can produce the equivalent of 80% or more of the country's entire output of polished marble and granite. So adding value, which is economically a good thing to do, but in effect taking it over entirely from the private sector. Land-based, anything land-based, agriculture, massive investment in land reclamation, and agricultural schemes, with which goes, of course, investment in water resources and possession of water resources in a country that's on the verge of water poverty. So again, there is a significant reallocation of key resources within the country. Um, Areas and farmers in the delta, which is, of course, Egypt's most fertile, most populated region, um, are being forced to move out of rice production because rice is a water guzzler. But at the same time, you have military agencies Either in the delta itself, like in the, NS, the ministry of defense's fish farms, massive fish farms they've opened up in the Del- delta lakes or along the Suez Canal expansion, but also south of the country in the oases, Farafra, etc., where they're engaged in highly water-intensive activities such as constructing, uh, doing land reclamation, and and constructing new desert cities. Many of which require the pumping of water over hundreds of kilometers, or from hundreds of meters of depth, up to you know, irrigate or to provide cities like the new administrative capital with water because they lack the water base. So there's, there's again, a clear uh, maldistribution going on here. Um, but also real estate, as I mentioned earlier. Everything to do with real estate, the military now have a major role in the construction, in the design, in the tendering of many of the big contracts. Just to be clear, uh, civilian agencies are still responsible for the bigger bulk of public works. According to government figures, the cabinet office, and according to the military spokesperson, um, taking their figures at face value, the military manage approximately a quarter of total public works infrastructure and housing, which is a lot, of course, but it's not everything. So just so I don't seem to be suggesting they've taken over everything... Um, But, again, their role in real estate is really important, and to give you one example of how the benefits work, the the new administrative capital being built east of Cairo, um, the ownership of the assets all belong to the administrative capital, uh, I think it's the urban development company, Acod. Uh, which is run by the military, 51% ownership by the Ministry of Defense. The rest of the ownership is by the new Urban Communities Authority, part of the Ministry of Housing, which is staffed and headed by retired military officers. So there's a lot of military interest here. And this um, company, which effectively owns the capital, has um, has awarded its, the, the these assets to the new sovereign wealth fund being created in return for receiving the dividends from that investment. So, in other words, they've transferred the assets back to state ownership, but then they have now secured in perpetuity the dividends from the, uh, the rental or sale of this state asset, which means that the, the Ministry of Defense is now a stakeholding <coughs> beneficiary of a state asset, which is a rather curious situation. Manufacturing is where uh, the military economy is the least efficient, probably it's an exact replica of all the state-owned companies that we saw from 1961 onwards or even before 61 when Nasser first started creating massive car assembly uh, firms, um, factories and foundries and so on. Um, Again, I've gone into a lot of detail in the report, I won't go into it here, but I want to also add two final things where the military, I think, are spearheading, uh, or at least uh, demonstrating, this new trend. One is trade, external trade in particular, and domestic trade, where the military have entered into a number of sectors as importers or as suppliers. So, the military now, a lot of their income comes from getting public contracts from other ministries to provide goods and services whether they manufacture them themselves or they simply buy them from someone else and then sell them to the ministry. So what they're doing is taking contracts that would previously have been given by that ministry to a private company, Egyptian or foreign, or to a public sector company, but instead are simply rediverting them to a military company, which may manufacture the goods and services itself or may simply procure them from someone else and then sell them on to the government ministry. So that's one form of insertion. Another is where they've inserted themselves into external trade chains, such as medicine. uh, Everything to do with the health ministry is now basically the monopoly of uh, the dealership, if you like, for importing uh, medication for the public sector in Egypt. has now been given to the Ministry of Defense, uh, which also is heavily involved in the import of meat and poultry. Um, And there's a noticeable pattern where the government removes tariffs on imports of poultry, of chicken and frozen chicken parts, and suddenly you have massive amounts being dumped in the local market in the name of bringing prices down ahead of Ramadan or whatever, and then you discover that it's either the military themselves or a front company like Meditrade, for instance, that have been importing on behalf of a sovereign agency um, and basically undercutting, of course, private producers within the country on a massive scale. And this is where the last point comes in, and this is the entry into tradable commodities where the military are now, and this is different from all the previous 40, 50 years of military involvement in the economy, uh, is where the military have entered directly into sectors that were previously almost 100% dominated by private sector companies, foreign and domestic, such as cement, steel, fertilizers, and others. Uh, but where military companies now themselves produce these commodities and sell them in civilian markets. There's always an explanation for this to do with national security, to do with stabilizing markets, breaking monopolies, although in many of the, most of these cases there isn't a monopoly, uh, and, 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 and so on. Uh, but what we therefore see is that the military have staked out what is, in effect, state ownership in a sector that had been privatized successfully – and where now suddenly in cement, for instance, 80%, 80% of the sector is private, 20% of the sector is suddenly state-owned again, or military-owned more specifically, uh, with other state ownership it's probably 25 or 26, whatever percent in cement, for instance. Um, and that's, that's quite a transformation to happen within the space of a year or two in an economy and, or in a sector that is supposedly privatized and private sector run. I think I'll stop there. There's more I could say about conclusions, but I do want to allow much more time for opening this up. So I yeah. don't I hand it back to you?
0: Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> do, where is the roving mic? Yeah, perfect. So uh, since the event is recorded, please uh, talk with the microphone. Yeah, uh, the first question here. Uh, shall we collect questions? It's up or to you. you uh, I mean, if
1: anyone has a similar question, maybe they, we could. Yeah, let's uh,
0: let's uh, take the first question, please. Uh, if you can just see, briefly introduce yourself. Yes, of
2: course. My name's John Hamilton, from a company called Cross Border Information, which is a, a research company. Uh, just a bit earlier today, I was I was sitting with an Egyptian friend, and talking about um, business, and we got onto the subject of the military involvement that, that you mentioned. And he, he said a thing which surprised me a great deal. He, he, spoke, he spoke exactly about the parallel that you made right at the beginning of <coughs> your talk with um, the way that what's happened under Sisi can be really compared to, to, to right at the beginning under NASA, the way that the, that the military got involved in the economy. But then he said that in that context, the sixty-seven war and these were his exact words, was a blessing from God. He said, because of its result, that he said um, it, it, it basically meant that the militarisation of, of the economy was significantly set back as a result of the defeat. And actually, you then had several decades following on from Sadat where uh, you know, the private sector was able to advance. And he sees what's happening now as you know, a, a real reversal uh, and I just wondered in that context, I mean, partly w- whether we should eventually expect this sort of militarization of the economy perhaps to lead to, to actual sort of mili- m- m- greater militarisation in other respects, Libya perhaps, or, um, or, 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 or I don't know, else uh, in, in other contexts. And also, otherwise, how, how, what, what other consequences do you see of this development? Thank you. Thanks
0: sorry
2: as you wish
1: um yeah i think that's that's a great well both i mean the, the the quote and the question are are really good um absolutely there was a big shift i mean 67 um <laughs> triggered a number of important uh, shifts internally um i think the for me the best uh, book on this um is by Hazm Kandil on uh, soldiers, states, statesmen and spies. And he basically looks at the sort of the, the, the contest between different factions within the military and the security agencies at the end of the day between Nasser and Abdul Hakim Amir, his head of army, who was a rival, um, and who did the most in this telling and also in quite a few other tellings. Uh, to undermine military profession, professionalism uh, and to implicate the military in sort of patronage, etc., and, and therefore, you know, helped produce the '67 uh, disaster. Um, now, so yes, the the degree of militarization uh, was definitely reduced. Sadat deliberately went after that and tried to pull the military out of the out of power. And so you had the lowest number of cabinet ministers or governors from military backgrounds for a long while. Uh, how much that changed things at lower levels, lower ranks is difficult to say. In my reading, um, the military, of course, were always very important, and they were uh, a key regime pillar. But in terms of their role in the economy, I think, as I've said uh, earlier, uh, that the, the the military's role, the, the size of their stake, and the significance of their stake in the economy, I think, has always been overplayed. Uh, sometimes by them. I mean, the the military like to say we you know do all these wonderful things for Egypt. We produce food. We produce uh, you know cheap chicken, whatever. Uh, we save the country. We build highways. We provide uh, baby formula at affordable prices. And no one's really gone into the economics of that, the real economics, to work out just how much is, you know, how much, uh, what what are the real cost benefits here? Uh, And what is the real cost to the public purse? Because the military will say, well, we can produce this highway or build this highway at half the cost. And on, you know, on your sort of balance sheets, you look at things and yes, it's half cost, but then they're not paying taxes and they're not paying customs duties. They're getting foreign exchange at uh, very favorable rates they sometimes use free labor, conscript labor. Um, and we now know as well, uh, I mean, I've he- heard this from many sources, but you will have heard it from the fugitive businessman, Muhammad Ali, who went on uh, public at the end of August last year. Um, he runs a medium, I guess, medium 500 employee construction company, used to head one, MLAC Holding, which worked for about 15 years with the military building presidential palaces and housing and hotels and so on for uh, government-funded projects and complained that um, he'd, although he'd made a lot of money out of the military, he was owed £225 million Egyptian pounds at the time he fled the country. Um, this hasn't been denied by anyone, and we know anecdotally from many other sources that what the military does is it awards contracts to private sector companies but negotiates the profit margin with them. And what, what it therefore does is says, okay, we've got 100 million pounds to spend on this housing project, you're gonna do it for 80 million. And the contractor can say yes or no or whatever, uh, but if they say no, they know that the military won't give them the next contract. And so companies will accept bad terms in order to, and sometimes, as in this case, there's arrears the Ministry of Defense doesn't pay, uh, it forces the private companies to do things for free, in effect. Or if there are sudden uh, developments, like in late 2016, the sharp devaluation of the pound against the dollar, so obviously companies delivering projects which have to import goods, such as, say, steel rebars or whatever it may be, suddenly find that the cost has shot up for them, and the military refuse to compensate for that or to renegotiate the, the budget with the government. So there's a whole range of things that um, are happening nowadays that didn't happen previously, whether under Nasser or under Sadat or under Mubarak. And one big difference here is that the military have a formal management role that they didn't have under Nasser, even at the height of the military involvement in civilian affairs. So it was under Nasser, and it's unclear whether it was Nasser or Amir, who really launched this trend of pulling senior officers into the civilian bureaucracy to run ministries and public projects like land reclamation. The first project was launched in 1954. Um, and But none of that meant that the military as an institution played a, a, an official role in economic management. That's what's happening now. And that's, that's very different. So yes, 67 had a huge impact. But everything since 67, especially with the assassination of Sadat and Mubarak coming to power, his rivalry with Abu Ghazala in the 1980s, privatization in 1991, the debt write off with the Gulf War in 1991, all these different things fed into the system I d- discussed at the start, which is whoever was president, the sort of the name of the game was also always to maintain the governing system, coalition, regime, and the key to this was to find capital. It could be a debt write-off of 20 or $30 billion in '91 to '94 or so. It could be the injection of about $25 billion worth of direct and indirect assistance by GCC countries after 2013. It could be the IMF loan of $12, million, $12 billion. Um, it's these injections that keep the whole game flowing. It's like a big Ponzi scheme, in, in effect, because none of this is allowed an increase in productivity, investment, value-added, local content, etc., in the rest of the economy. And that's the key issue. And so the military have now got involved in something where you're, you're, you asked about consequences, where one consequence is they're being given this ma- crucial role in materially um, trying to generate capital and jobs and so on and growth. Um, They do this, though, working to priorities and goals in sectors that are defined mostly not by themselves, but by the president or sometimes by ministers. So the president wants a second canal expansion or a so-called second canal. The military does it, whether it's feasible or not. Mubarak, refused to follow that, implement that same plan two or three times in 20 or 30 years. Sisi wanted something very flashy to do. He said, we're going to have another canal, an expansion. And so it happened. He wanted a new administrative capital. It's happening. The military don't necessarily set these policy goals, but they're clearly implicated deeply in, in, in implementing them. And they don't have the professional uh, ability to assess the genuine economic feasibility or impacts of these projects, which are basically sinking tens of billions of dollars into schemes on the assumption that if you take a piece of desert, turn it into prime real estate, privilege it by saying the whole government and all foreign embassies are going to move to this new capital, that you will generate, of course, a you know, massive rise in real estate prices, that somehow this will attract money out of people's bank accounts or from diaspora Egyptians and expatriates or retired South Asians, whatever, the kind of Dubai model, in other words, to come to new Alamein or new Mansoura or Galala or the new administrative capital in Egypt. But what if that doesn't happen? It's basically an endless game of looking for more money to feed the first set of uh, commitments. And an example of that was the Suez Canal, which was funded by... um, uh, Proud CC very proudly said, we will not take a far, penny of foreign money for this. It's all going to be Egyptian money that funds the construction of the, of the expansion. Um, and so 32 billion Egyptian pounds went out of bank accounts to buy, from 1.1 million Egyptians, to buy government bonds in the Suez Canal, which were due, this was 2014, due in 2019, last year. And they were paid off. But one reason why that was possible is that in the interim, the the Egyptian pound lost 50% of its value. And so paying bonds in Egyptian pounds at half the original dollar cost wasn't as painful as as it might have been. So Egypt is stuck in this thing, and Sisi's approach doesn't promise to break the mold. Macroeconomic indicators are really good in terms of overall growth in terms of uh, foreign currency reserves and so on. But if you take it apart and look at where the money is going, which sectors, where the investment is going, where it's not, where productivity is very low or declining, then there's a very distressing picture alongside things like rising poverty rates, illiteracy rates at around 25%, poverty, extreme poverty now at 32.5% officially, according to the government's own uh, statistical agency. So these are highly worrying trends, which this economic approach, I don't think, shifts. Where do the military sit in all this? Well, I'll I'll stop with with one last comment, which is um, that in addition to this, in a way, gamble, that all this is somehow going to keep Egypt going until money starts flowing in from all these different schemes, including a fair amount of industrial construction in, say, the Suez zone, Suez Canal zone. I mean, there is... It's not all purely, you know, real estate speculation, Uh, but whether that's going to pay off or not is still very, very unclear. Um, But where the military also come into this is that they are acquiring a stake. They are making a significant amount of income that goes into army funds or Ministry of Defence accounts, not into the state treasury, which they don't have to account for. They don't have to return. They don't have to share and which they can then use for whatever purposes they want, which may be to buy new fighter aircraft, it may be to build new military bases, it may be to give better pensions to their senior officers, uh, or all of the above, which is what happens. But they also invest in things like new cement plants and factories or buying steel companies. But there, these are major investments, and already we hear that, say, the new military cement companies operating at about 40% of capacity which is pretty high for a military company, by the way. I mean, normally, utilization rates are much lower, which is terrible, because it means you've got underutilized labor, underutilized machinery, a lot of you know, stuff sitting in storage. And this massive new investment is working at 40% capacity. Either they're going to have to sell it off at some point, or they're going to have to increase their sales, which means pushing out more private companies. And the question is, you know, they're at that point where they are going to go this way or the other way. And at some point, if they decide to push to protect their stake, they're going to have to become more aggressive about it and to start maybe influencing policy setting, like what tariffs are set for cement and steel to protect their market, uh, what, you know, what the terms are of borrowing from banks, you know, do they crowd out private sector companies? Again, we have signs of all this happening.
0: Here? Uh, just uh, can I ask you to be brief on the question so that we have uh, enough time for everyone?
3: Okay. okay. Um, Hazim Khandil, he wrote a book called Power Triangle in 2016, and uh, I just wanted to ask about. Um, so he talked about how the military came into economic activities in the end of the in the end of the seven at the end of the 70s. Uh, and part of the reasoning was that there was not much spending by other civilian institutions uh, towards the military. And, um, and uh, yeah, so the military got into economics and increased its economic activity in order to spend on itself, on its soldiers, on its military uh, equipment, for example. I just wondered whether you think this still um, informs their mentality uh, today uh, and the economic activity today.
1: Thanks. That's uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah please, please Well, I'll try and keep it brief this time. Um, it's it's a it's a good question. Um, I sort of answer it. I think in my report. Um, I think there's been a shift. Um, your what what your your quote from Hazem's book I think is accurate, or let's say his analysis is accurate uh, for that time. Um now the difference is that and I, and I think that from the 19 mid 1970s when the military economy started to reform because it had more or less disappeared from Nasser's time late Nasser's time um until 2011 when Mubarak was forced out of office for pretty much all that period in my view the military economy was an enclave In other words, it was relatively small and modest in total value, size, activity, and impact. And therefore, mainly served these purposes of, you know, satisfying the senior officer corps. Uh, But this went hand in hand with something new that happened mostly under Mubarak. Already was there under Nasser and Sadat, uh, thanks to Amir partly, but happened, emerged a lot more under Mubarak, especially after 1991 and privatization was what I've called the Officer's Republic. In other words, the massive number of senior officers retired who were reappointed in various parts of the state bureaucracy, thousands of them. Um, And I I provide quite a lot of detail on that uh, in my report and in a previous paper called The Officer's Republic. Um, By my estimate, there's several thousand major generals alone, uh, which are the important category here. and that sort of what happened was that the military economy per se, the formal economy, was small, but there were other benefits from retirees going into local government, state-owned enterprises, government ministries, general authorities, all these different – it's a huge edifice. Um, this became a form of assuring their loyalty and keeping them out of politics. It was a sort of simple exchange. You stay out of politics, you stay loyal, you make it to a higher grade. Once you become chief of staff of the Air Force, deputy chief of staff or whatever – you are assured to move on in retirement to head Egypt Air or the Airport Authority or whatever else. Um, So there were shifts occurring, and this pattern I just described was there in the previous 20 or 30 years, but became massive under Tantawi, defense minister from 1991. Um, And since 2011, there's been yet another shift, and that's partly what I'm saying here, is that whatever the motivations might have been or the balance between different motivations might have been in, say, 1980 or 81, I think now there's, there's a whole different balance. And I think the military has now broken out of its enclave, has been invited out of its enclave. Um, it's significant that between 2011 and 2013, when the military were the top power in the country, uh, Mubarak handed over his powers to the military, until Mohamed Morsi was elected president at the end of June 2012, the military were governing Egypt. Um, they left momentarily. and But it's only after Sisi came to office um, that there has been a real transformation where the military as an institution has the kind of role it has. Now, partly that means I think the military could re- return to an enclave status, but it'll probably be a much larger enclave than it used to be, um, first. Second is they may go the opposite way, which is to double down and increase their stake, not re- decrease it. And everything is doing so far suggests that that is happening. He's now suggesting floating military companies on the stock exchange, which is a very interesting development. Um, I think it'll be problematic for him and for them to do this for various reasons I can get into. But but that, again, is a very interesting development. Um, The other thing that's happening, though, and this is also uh, an amplification of an existing pattern, is a sort of gold rush where more and more officers in service and out of service in the army, but also in the police and internal security and some other sectors probably are getting a taste for this because they all want to get in on the act of setting up commercial companies and having equity in something and the president and the the cabinet have over the past few years issued legislation that authorizes all government ministries or most of them and certainly the military and police ministries to establish commercial vent companies on their own or jointly with domestic and foreign capital i mean it's extraordinary you know you're sort of asking government ministries to open up companies all over the place. And that, again, goes back to my state capitalism theme. They do this either on their own under commercial rules by which the private sector operates or in direct joint partnership with private companies. But these are state companies. These are state agencies, sorry. And everyone wants in on the act. And, again, there's more and more evidence of how... Different, you know, officers try and get in on this and different agencies say, well, why does this agency get to set up companies? Why can't we? Mm-hmm. And that again goes back to my point about CC to some extent being hostage to the interests of the alliance he's got. He needs to keep them all happy and fed. And the point is, Diwan made to me that I quote at the end of my report, I was going to conclude with earlier, um, is that he's got this, he's got to navigate. He needs to broaden his coalition to the extent possible but that costs money so there's a limit to how bro- how broad he can make it so can he make it broad enough to stabilize power can he afford to broaden it sufficiently and that is the big dilemma uh
0: more questions uh one here
4: uh, uh, can you just
0: can i ask you to wait for the mic yeah, it's a
4: Thank you very much for that. I'm not sure I can put this very coherently. My question relates to the broader theme of globalization. What you seem to be presenting is a very uh, uh, autarkic regime, somewhat, but I don't want to draw political um, inferences of equality, like the uh, Stalinist regimes in the 1980s. You seem to be, uh, what's been left out of it, as far as I can understand, is the degree to which Egypt is uh, dependent on external trade and investments. And you imply, of course, and the IMF figures and all the rest, um, make it very clear that this kind of regime is antipathetic to External uh, investors, because they will have no control over what's going on, and I, mean, I was just it struck that the Economist is here talk, this last week um, talking about the IMF deal, where the, you know they lent money to Egypt in 2017, expecting FDI to flow in, and it, in fact it hasn't materialised, which you know is in line with what you said so i just wondered if you could say a little bit about um, egypt's international uh, trade and uh, investment relations
0: yeah shall we collect some more questions um uh, okay Uh, yes one this side well actually two Um, yeah, the gentleman and then... Sorry. Yeah, please. Yeah, please. please.
4: Um, do you think it's dangerous kind of politically for the military to align and maybe over-exaggerate its role in the economy if the economy's not going to, might not like, if they don't have the experts it might not go so well and they're not focusing on domestic policy um, or domestic capital? Um, whether this could be dangerous in terms of public perception of the military.
5: Thanks. Um, I just want to build on some of the questions before and some of your answers in a way, because I still want to be convinced that there is a real probably change in that sense and this is a new era because uh, I'm reminded of the old adage change in continuity or continuity in change Uh, the the gentleman here before mentioned the uh, shift in 1967 uh, it seems to me that in fact it's been there all the time that the changes are not really structural but probably just facade in 1967 we went from uh, Sadat in fact the transition between Nasser and Sadat was more of a uh, perhaps ideological in where way. You said there was no ideology, but perhaps ideological. You could see that the state capitalism at the time was much closer to the Soviet model. And then when Sadat came into power, it was, uh, in fact, here he had to align himself with the United States rather than Soviet Union. So that's the sort of change, cap- capitalism mark one. And then in the 80s, it was mark II under the pressures of the, the IMF, which uh, did not apply just to Egypt, but applied to everyone. In, in fact, in Africa, in the the least part of it. So, the, the military as an institution has been there all the time. It's just the facade it, it provides, perhaps. But. My other question is that, it was, isn't there an it says overlap? to
0: keep it short. Yeah, isn't yeah. there an
5: overlap when you say that there's been privatization? Whether the military as an institution uh, shifted to the military as individuals in the privatization, you mentioned the administration and things, but how many military personnel actually invested directly in the private sector? That's the, the other overlap. Sorry, I think I'll, I'll keep it short if that's okay. Um...
1: Very interesting questions yeah um, I'll come to the middle question first uh, about I, I think you've put your finger on a real issue, which is by and I started to say this earlier in response to another question sort of lost my thread uh, that by taking on responsibility so visibly for economic delivery the military are putting themselves in a, in a or are being put in a potentially awkward position. Um, so far, they like to boast a lot about how much they've done to the extent that I, I know for sure in some cases they've, on their Facebook page at least, claimed credit for productive ventures that actually are private. And you know, they just claim them because the venture is being run in a military zone. Um, and there is a potential cost. However, so far, uh, the armed forces enjoy still very high levels of trust among the general population. Um, it's still seen as you know, being sort of the brother and the father. I mean, because there's conscription, there's a massive number of people who are uh, in it and represented, families that are represented in it. There's um, subsidized goods that you can buy at... Uh, uh, commissaries at you know cooperative supermarkets, military supermarkets. They provide free medical or reduced price medical care at a large number of facilities. There's a whole range of things they do to provide a sort of benevolent social character uh, and back up social welfare. Um, where the now down the line this could change, um, but I think also in a way the flip side of poverty and of extreme poverty is that many people in Egypt will um look to anyone who seems to promise a hope of looking out for them and you know the army boasts of issuing tens of thousands of shantat ramadani uh of food packages in ramadan or at other times of the year when there's a crisis in food supply they'll open up their bakeries and slaughterhouses etc etc as i mentioned earlier they'll dump massive amounts of you know chicken or meat imported from sudan for instance or bulgaria uh, which is bad for the private sector, but, of course, is good in terms of actually bringing prices down for low-income groups. So the one question, of course, is these are huge problems for Egypt. They're important problems. They do need uh, a response, and they do need a state-led response in many cases. That's totally legitimate. Uh, whether this kind of response is actually sustainable, the most effective, the most efficient is a whole different question. And generally speaking, I think it isn't. Where we see some signs of unhappiness is very privately in the business sector, where for the first time you hear from business delegations a lot of bitterness about the army, which you never heard before. I mean, even if they were critical, they kept it to themselves. Um, But now, you know, people coming out, for instance, uh, or if you're based there and have business friends, you will hear complaints uh, about the military, at least in the sectors that are most directly affected. And, and it's, uh, it's a sort of ironic that just last July, the Federation of uh, Producers of Cement went to the Prime Minister pleading for help because of the impact on their balance sheets, because of the military entry into the cement sector. And he promised help, which is ironic because the military, therefore, is generating a problem which the government is going to have to pay to fix. And in terms of the net impact on the economy, or on public finances it 's obviously a negative one, whereas the military will present it as if they 've just saved the country um, now the the double questions about the military, how much change uh, and military investment privatization didn 't generate necessarily a large or noticeable proportion of investment by military people in privatized companies although there are some instances where groups of officers apparently clubbed together and bought shares privatization worked out in a number of different ways sometimes it was sort of what you might think of as privatization where you you know it's an open floating of shares others where you sell shares by auction others where there's a pre-arranged deal to sell to a particular buyer so all of this happened in egypt And in some cases, it was other public sector individuals or companies that bought and therefore supposedly privatized the companies when, in fact, they were just going from one public sector to another public sector uh, shareholder. There there was a whole range of this. Now, but where the significance is for here is that I I haven't established a direct, clear and definite sort of connection between the privatization process and the growth of what I call the Officers Republic, the retiree phenomenon. But there's a definite massive increase in the number of senior officers being spread out in the state sector and the economy parallel to privatization. Now, whether there was a direct relationship, I can't really establish, and I'm not sure that was necessarily the case. What's interesting is, and this is again where people like Sahar Diwan, Adil Malik, uh, and others have established that with privatization, you had big businessmen and mostly a lot of the time crony businessmen. I mean, people with good connections with Mubarak or his son Gamal, the National Democratic Party, etc., to gain access to contracts, to credit, to import licenses, to all the key factors that controlled profitability. And what these economists have established is that there is a definite connection or a correlation between being well politically connected and the profitability of a company, which doesn't mean the company necessarily wasn't actually also effective commercially and produced good goods. I mean, good goods. They probably did in many cases, but that if you weren't connected, you were definitely a loser commercially and in terms of quality and everything. And what they also found was that in the period when the military were in the margin politically, especially in the 2000s when Gamal Mubarak rose uh, and became very influential with the Nazif government, which was much more pro-reform, neoliberalism, you had a definite disregard of military officers and a prioritization for these companies of being close to Gamal Mubarak, who was a civilian, and other civilians. And this is a period when you wanted these connected civilians on your board of directors but what you had what you've had since then is a much sharper rise in the number of military officers sitting on boards of civilian companies so that's the sort of measure they use as a proxy to estimate who is seen by the business community as influential and therefore who do you want on your board it might be a military person but at some other periods of time it might be you know gamal mubarak so there were connections between privatization and these patterns, um, but it's difficult to say. People like Zainab al Magd have argued that um, this neoliberal turn allowed the military to start buying state companies. But I track, and I've got a chart in my, in my report, that shows exactly how many companies were established in each year by the military. And the, the, the trend is quite flat until 2014, 15, 16, and then it just sh- shoots up like that. So that's, I think, another proxy, which is that the companies that they actually bought between, say, 1991 and 2011, there was, I forget how many companies they established or bought, existing state-owned companies, there were less than half a dozen overall. They were all loss-making. They're still loss-making. They were a bad investment, if you like. It's not entirely clear why they went in for them either. Uh, And one of them is the Alexandria shipyard. Um, So I think that the the, the military uh, didn't like privatization, but mostly because of the social impact on social stability and welfare. They didn't want anything that would shake social stability, like people getting fired from their jobs. And a lot of that happened in companies that got privatized. So um, I'm taking too long, but change. Your, Your comment about there not being that much change, I think, is true Insofar as we're talking about the political role of the military in Egypt, I was talking about their economic role. And there, I think their economic role was never as big as some people have made out or as big as they've sometimes tried to make out. And by economic, I also mean delivery of public goods and services, not just pure economic. And there, I think there is demonstrably a big shift. And I mean, the detail's all there in my report, and you can you know, look at the detail, the data, and the methodology, and then maybe we can have another discussion about it. Politically, I'm of the view, and I differ here with a number of people uh, who are certainly more expert generally on Egypt, but I think when it comes to the military, I think the military has not governed Egypt except in very brief periods. One of them, say, 2013, 2011, uh, maybe in the early 50s. But in terms of being the primary political player, I think there's always been a president who was on top. And of course, the president in almost in all cases but one has been from the military. But the president in each case has placed himself above the military. And that's where Sisi is different, in that he's not divorced himself from the military as much as any of his predecessors did, starting with Nasser, going through Mubarak. Um, he's not as divorced. And I think that's partly maybe because he's more vulnerable. Um, he doesn't he doesn't seem to know how to negotiate social alliances. He wants big business involved, he wants their money, he wants them to be friendly, but he allows the military to do things that are alienating big business. And you look at where big business have their money, people like the Sawiris brothers, uh, Suedi, Mansour, most of their capital is outside the country. And I think that's really telling, and this maybe takes me to your question about... um, the, the foreign, uh, sort of the international dimension, I think that's a great question. Partly because, and you've put your finger on something fascinating about Egypt, which uh, I'm hoping to write up at some point, where you've got a country that is globalized for sure in the sense that it um, it's not isolated from the world. So it's not autarkic in, say, the old Albanian sense under Enver Hoxha or whatever. But it, um, and yet it has this fascinating, paradoxical. Quality, where internally the economy is run in ways where it could almost have been an autarky. Um, and so you have, you know, the business environment is constantly being made more receptive and user friendly, especially for foreign companies. Um, the new sovereign wealth fund is advertising itself as a friend to foreign investors by helping them navigate Egyptian bureaucracy. I mean, this is what the military companies do. They, they tell Chinese companies and others, you know, our share of equity is we will navigate the paperwork for you and you provide the supplies and the equipment and the machinery and the know-how and the skilled labor. I mean, literally, there are contracts written out like this. And that tells you something where Egypt, and again, here, um, there's a wonderful paper exactly a year ago by George al Uh, uh, published by the International Finance Corporation of the IMF, who compares research and development investment and value-added and so on, and Egypt compared to its peers of, say, 30 or 40 years ago, or 30 years ago, from South Korea to Turkey to Brazil to others. And it's extraordinary. Some of them have increased... GDP or per capita GDP or research and development investment by up to six hundred percent, whereas Egypt has done, say, one hundred and twelve percent in the same period. Egypt, in terms of its value added in the the what they call you know integration into the value chain, the global value chain, they're not they're not even on the first rung, which is tragic because it's not as if Egypt doesn't have amazing you know skills and people, and opportunities, but the system functions in a way. And again, Diwan and his colleagues have written this in several different places. The political connectivity issue by which people basically get contracts, not by technological innovation or by market innovation, but by knowing the right people or by being the right people, what this means is there's been a huge disincentive to the kind of investment either in machinery and plant and market making or in research and development, and therefore adaptation and value-added and local content increase, et cetera, which which are critical in order to enter into the higher rungs of the value chain. And it's it's tragic. Where Egypt... you, You mentioned autarky, and my mind went to something which totally surprised me a couple of years ago. I was doing research. I like comparative research. I've looked at Pakistan, Indonesia, Turkey... China, many other countries for how their military economies work, And the one country I found that looked the most like Egypt in terms of the military role in the civilian sector was Cuba. Fascinating. I'll write it up someday and then you can see it. You have to get on my mailing list. Um, uh, But very briefly it's a system, it's an authoritarian system, right? Um, Which in Egypt, Cuba's case has a min, minuscule private sector, but it's trying to open up to private capital and investment and this and that and the other, at the same time, trusts the military more, or the military is the more powerful player, right? Um, and you look at the formal organizational map of the Ministry of the FAR, the Fuerza Armada Revolutionary, whatever, the Revolutionary Armed Forces, their organizational map has... A tourism company, import-export, you know, real estate, um, I I mean, uh, 20, 30 different economic civilian sectors, which they are formally involved in. And I mapped out what the Egyptian military do in the civilian economy of Egypt, either informally or formally. And if you superimpose the two on each other, they really match up. And so there's this extraordinary situation where supposedly this is a free market economy with, you know, 30 years at least of privatization, huge exposure to the IMF and the World Bank and foreign lenders, Western markets, all the rest of it, uh, free exchange of uh, currency, all sorts of things. And yet, structurally, it looks and operates, you know, like a zebra, in other words, like, like Cuba. I mean, whatever, you, whatever it claims for itself, if it's got black and white stripes and is a herbivore, it's a zebra. So it's, um, I, I need to, you know, provide more actual analysis there, but um, I think it can be done. And that's what they're, they're they're succeeding in doing. And partly because for Western governments, Egypt is important politically, strategically. And end of story. The rest of it, you know, the fact that they're not true free marketeers or not genuinely, uh, you know,
0: yeah, so we have uh, time for one final round of questions. I see two hands, uh, one at the end and on this side. Uh, this one new one, repeat. Well, let's go for the new one first and then let's go for the repeat.
4: Um, I wanted to ask a question regarding Mubarak's former cronies um, as opposed to the current CC ones. And my question is whether... Um, the former cronies of Gamal or uh, uh, Hosni Barak would therefore um, hinder Sisi's visions of increasing um, the military influence as opposed to uh, hindering it. I mean, as opposed to hindering privatization and whether that would have any effect.
0: Um, Yeah. Anyone else for a final question? Uh yeah so
3: please um so my question is on the um, distribution of benefits uh of this uh increased involvement of the army into the into the economy uh do you think that this is a a point where it can raise potential conflict for the military uh in the future in terms of how they distribute the benefits of this uh, involvement in the economy um, within the military institution? Two very good questions. Um, on the last,
1: um, I mentioned earlier an overheating of this form of economic behavior under the military economy and the growing appetite among a much wider range of military and non-military actors to get in on the act. Um, so far, the... There's enough scope for growth that the key military networks, whether wherever they sit, um, haven't had to collide much. But there are a few instances already between the military and general intelligence front companies uh, and in some cases between different military networks, by my analysis, where there are instances where there's a direct displacement and some pushback. And we've seen that here and there. Um, I think that more friction will arise as and when the amount of capital available to spend on public works, which then filters through to these different networks in the form of opportunities that they seize, if that starts to shrink, then you'll see more direct competition. It's what we saw, let's say, in Syria, northeast Syria prior to 2011 when security agencies which were getting into illegal water drilling in the east of the country in Deir started competing directly with the local people and then with each other as water grew shorter and shorter. And this was part of the backdrop to the the revolt that happened later on and why those regions rebelled. So it's that kind of dynamic I can foresee. How far it will go, it's unclear because for now there's enough foreign capital coming in, enough foreign currency reserves to pay the the key bills, So, you know, uh, what I will mention here, though, is something, uh, recent uh, estimate is that the foreign direct investment rate has been declining for the past two years. So the IMF loan managed to push things forward a little bit, and now, once again, foreign direct investment is drawing down which may suggest that a lot of the investors only come in when someone has led the way with a bit of a lavish gift of money, which allows the government to then start spending on things which allow the investor to come in and make a quick profit. Um, I don't think that's the only investments that are coming in from the outside, but, but there's some very problematic patterns there. Now, on um, the cronies, it's a great question. I've touched a little bit on this. I don't have enough research on it. Broadly speaking, most of the old Mubarak cronies are out of the picture, not completely. So Ahmed Aziz is around, and Aziz Steel, for instance, but diminished and politically not as powerful. Um, there are others who, like Hussein Salim or uh, Mohammed Abul Ainain, Cleopatra Group, and others, who fled the country, were prosecuted, and then were shaken down and were allowed to come back to the country in return for undisclosed deals, where probably they gave up some of the money, Um, but they seem to expect not just personal rehabilitation but also economic rehabilitation and in most of these cases they didn't get it. And I think it was Abu Aineen I quote at some point where two or three years after getting back to the country he went out again and sort of complained about the army taking over everything. In other words, he wasn't getting the share he expected. Now, what that leaves us with is something which I think where we are now is not exactly cronies. Uh, I don't think the CC administration has business cronies, per se. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't businessmen who are well connected and who get benefits. I mean, Orascom, for instance, has a subcontract in every big project, right? So, 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 it is. Uh El Suwedi get big contracts as well. I mean, they all do, but that doesn't give them political influence. It doesn't mean they've got the ear of the president, it doesn't mean they can swing contracts. So there's a rather complex relationship, which I'm very interested in, and I've tried to sort of outline a little bit, where the military, it's not clear what the military really think. I think personally that the military and to some extent Sisi himself don't really like or trust big business, partly because big business, if it's genuinely successful and autonomous, will be a political counterpart. They're not looking for alliances with these people. They're not looking for dialogue with these people. They want their capital. They want their international connections, their access to market, their access to technology, to know-how, to transferable skills. And again, their capital. So if you look at the really big projects like the Mustarad um, Petro Refinery or the new uh, whatever, Tahrir Petrochemicals Complex in Ayn al these are done in partnership with big domestic multinational companies like one of the, not biggest, but certainly an impressive one, Carbon Holdings, for instance, okay? Or Kala Citadel, which is uh, Hassanin Hakeel's second son. Um, So these are companies that are real companies. They're not just, you know, um, patronage vehicles. Um, They've struggled to get contracts, even though they're well-connected. They they don't automatically get the the big contracts. I mean, Carbon Holdings worked for about 10 years, I hear, before they got this contract. But at the same time, they are significant. And I think at the end of the day, the military and CC go to them because they need them. And the dynamic changes, and I try to discuss this a little bit in a chapter in my report, that when you look at medium businesses and then the small businesses, there's a whole different dynamic because there the power structure is entirely in the favor of the military or the government procuring agents who award the contracts, where if you've got a company that can build a housing building You've got 12,000 other companies that can do the same thing. None of them have a leverage. So what you can do is say, you want this contract. We've got, we're building 100,000 housing units. We're going to dole it out, three buildings per company. And so we've got you know 30 contracts to give out, or we're building 200-kilometer highway, and we're going to dole it out every three or five kilometers to a different company. You want in, here are the terms. You don't like it, don't come back. We'll find someone else, and we won't give you future business. That's a different relationship. But with big business, this is not about equality. It's not about uh, partnership. It's uh, utilitarian. She has a follow-up.
0: Uh, unfortunately, we have to close it now because of uh, recording issues also. Uh, but, um, well, if you have You're any... welcome to
1: take my card. Come up to me and take yes. my card or sign up on our... Yes, exactly. You,
0: I guess you are welcome to continue the discussion for a few more minutes in case. A few more minutes. Yeah, just a few more minutes. Uh, before closing the event, let me remind uh, or let me inform you that the next event for the, the Middle East in, um, Center will be by Kim Rattash, a former BBC journalist, and uh, will be on uh, uh, presenting her new book, uh, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran and the real rivalry that unraveled the Middle East uh and to conclude let me thank again our uh, our guests and uh, so.